three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Tim Tate. He's another guest that comes to us from the UK, and he has recently published a book which I've read. The title of the book is Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors in World War II. It was published July 2nd, 2019. This is one of his recent publications. He's published many books. Uh, the listing of his many books is on his website, which is timtate.co.uk. But he's not only an author, he's also done uh, many documentaries and films for British TV, Discovery Channel, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, Al Jazeera, A&E. So he has a very lengthy uh, CV, which you can check out in detail on his excellent website. Again, it's timtate.co.uk. And some of the more interesting titles of, uh, that he's uh, investigated, one is Children for the Devil, Ritual Abuse and Satanic Crime. That was uh, also Hitler's British Traitors and a recently published book in 2018, The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Crime Conspiracy and Cover-Up, a new investigation, something that I uh, recently did an interview with Lisa Peace on the same subject. Um, but again, tonight we're going to talk about his recent publication, Hitler's Secret Army, a hidden history of spies, saboteurs, and traitors in World War II. Tim, are you there? I am indeed. Awesome. Well, thank you again for agreeing to the interview. I tried to curtail the intro. I know you have a lot, much more information in your lengthy career. But for people who don't know your name, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this subject of World War II history? I'm um, an old veteran, I think is the polite phrase, journalist, investigative journalist. I've been a journalist for 40-something years um, and a documentary filmmaker for most of that. And I made films, as you say, for all British networks and for a lot of international networks. And I've always written books at the same time. It's something that I've been doing throughout my career. And when I retired from television, when I hit the age of 60 a couple of years ago, I decided to focus full-time on writing books. And Hitler's Secret Army was the... Uh, third, I think, book it, after I'd given up making films. And it came about because I saw a brief newspaper story about an intriguing, and in fact, groundbreaking um, MI5. That's our, um, I suppose, our equivalent of the FBI. It had MI5, MI5, the security service in Britain, had carried out during World War II um, an elaborate and long-running entrapment operation to track down and identify and nullify would-be British traitors who were trying to get sensitive military secrets and information to Berlin in the hope that Germany would win the war. And I thought, well, this looked very interesting. It was Some files had been released to our National Archives, which described it. And I thought it might make a book. Um, I went to the archives, and I thought I'd spend a couple of weeks there going through these files. It didn't quite work out that way. When I emerged, it was a year later, and instead of a handful of files, I had come across hundreds of declassified files relating to many hundred traitors, British traitors, people who worked hard. They committed espionage, sabotage, communicated with German intelligence during World War II, all with the hope of bringing about a German victory. And at that point, I knew I had a book. Um, it just took a year, solid research, seven days a week, to analyse the files, and then another year to write it. And those, those were recently declassified documents as well. I think I remember that some of those were just within the last 10 or 15 years. Is that correct? All of them were with, within the last 18 years. And these files, bear in mind, were created by MI5 or the British government in the 1930s and 1940s. And it had taken till the year 2000 for them to start being released. The last ones I was working with were, in fact, released in the fall of last year, into 2018. So there was a huge delay in releasing these files for public inspection and when you read them that's not entirely surprising because the story they they tell the picture they paint 
is pretty much at odds with the conventional history of Britain during World War Two. And what, what was the conventional history, and what, what do these new files paint uh, or add to that picture? Well, I mean, the conventional narrative of Britain in World War II is of a, a nation united against Germany, against Nazism, against fascism, a nation which together suffered the privations of rationing, the terrible blitz, had all the setbacks, including Dunkirk, but emerged united to fight against Nazism and to fight against Hitler. That's the conventional narrative, and it's one which we have told ourselves as a country for the last 70 or so years. It's not... It's a true narrative in almost every regard, but the almost every is important because there is another story, which is the secrets history shown in these files, which shows there were several hundred very determined and dangerous British traitors who wanted to bring about a German victory and who worked hard to do so. And in fact, the the declassified files showed that not merely were there individuals doing this, but that there were three very well-organized and very well-advanced plots for a fascist coup d'etat, a violent revolution, which was to depose the British government and replace it with a pro-Nazi puppet regime. And, I mean, one of the things that the public didn't know at the time is many of these trials were in camera. They were not publicized trials, so the files themselves are not available. And so it gives a different insight. Can we start talking about the people who were sympathizers for Hitler and some of these groups and then talk about uh, the plans to overthrow the British government? Sure. I mean, we should start, I guess, with the people who were convicted um, of what were we can't call it treachery or treason because those are specific offenses um but they were convicted of spying for britain uh, for germany for um sending military intelligence to germany for working with german intelligence for committing sabotage there were more than 70 trials during world war ii of these people as you say almost all of them were conducted in secret and what they resulted in, these were 70 convictions. Most of the people were sentenced to lengthy terms of imprisonment. Four were condemned to death, and two of those were actually executed. So I think that's, those are the places where we should start, okay. with those convicted traitors, if you will. And they included, one of the first ones I dealt with was a woman who didn't look remotely like a spy. Her name was Jessie Jordan. She was a middle-aged, middle-class Scottish hairdresser. She lived and worked in a small Scottish town, Dundee, and this was in just before the war in 1937. Behind that facade, behind that image, though, Jessie Jordan had actually been recruited by German intelligence. She was running... She was carrying out espionage mapping sensitive military installations all over Britain and sending those maps to German intelligence. And she was also acting as a post box, the go-between or cutout, if you like, between German intelligence in Hamburg and a Nazi spy ring in New York and Washington, D.C. Those spies in the U.S. sent information to Jordan she passed it on to Hamburg. It was safer to do it that way than send it directly from America. And what the file showed is that not merely was that Nazi spying in New York and D.C. working very effectively, but that it had plans to kidnap and torture a senior U.S. military official so that he would provide U.S. military information to Germany. And all of this was running through this small hairdressing business in Dundee, in Scotland. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, the, and she was one of so many. You list so many of these cases that these just rank and file members of British society are sympathizers and involved in obtaining documents, military plans, 
sketching out ports and uh, she's like one of these if you saw a picture of her which is in your book you wouldn't even think for at least I wouldn't that she would be a involved in espionage no I mean she looks like a pleasant middle-aged grandmother which is indeed what she was as well as being a very very serious and dangerous spy for completion she got she got four years uh, penal servitude, hard labour in the old terms, um, which doesn't sound very much, but bear in mind this was before the war, and Britain's laws at that point covering treachery and treason were in a terrible state. They were in a dreadful state. We simply didn't have suitable laws to deal with these people. So Jordan went to prison unrepentant and utterly unwilling to share information about precisely who she'd been sending this material to she spent four years in prison for that and she was followed as you say by a succession of other spies and saboteurs and traitors and one of the odd interesting things about the threat to england at that time is also that many of the german businesses themselves were all involved in spying i was surprised to learn that siemens and some of these other uh, corporations that are still around were uh, working for the German government. Yeah, it's you, you, you're not alone in being surprised. I think I was slightly surprised when I came across these files. But more importantly, the British government should have spotted this in the late 1930s and early 1940s. And they should have spotted it because the whole essence of national socialism in Germany was based on motivating and mobilizing all the powers of the state, and that included private business, to work on behalf of the Nazi regime. And you mentioned Siemens, Siemens Schuckert, which was a, a giant global corporation, electronics or an electrics corporation, had bases literally all over the world. And I, there are, I think, a dozen volumes of MI5's files and surveillance reports on Siemens, and they show quite clearly that the management, the German management of Siemens all over the world, had been instructed by Hitler's regime, you will go out and you will find intelligence and find sensitive information and you will send it back to Berlin. And what made that even more dangerous is that Siemens was then in receipt and carrying out military contracts for Britain, I think for the US and certainly in other countries around the world. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, I mean, I think that that was the, the inversion of what was happening in England where German intelligence, I think you wrote they had England at a great disadvantage at that time, that, uh, that it wasn't... Yeah wasn't the same way as far as the UK was concerned. No, Britain was utterly, utterly unprepared. Um, as a nation, we had gone through, we were going through the 30s, which were, uh, was a terrible time, as it was for many people around the world, with the, the vast depression. Um, and we were still recovering from the first war, the Great War of 1914 to 1918. And we had, as a country, we'd rather let our guard down. Militarily, we were utterly unprepared for war. I mean, you can read the files and you'll see the generals, the military chiefs are saying, look, we just aren't ready for war, another war with Germany. We need another year, two years to mobilize to get our material prepared. Beyond that, and this is really where it began to hit home for me when I was going through these files, our security service, MI5, was in a dreadful state. It had been starved of resources in the interwar years and had barely a handful of officers as war approached. It had also spent a great deal of time in the early and mid-30s focusing on communism, the communist threat, and only really woke up to the the threat of fascism and Nazism in around 1936 and 1937. And at that point, it, it just didn't have the staff or the intelligence networks to try and 
infiltrate and uncover what the vast array of British fascist groups were up to. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of these notorious characters like Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists and how serious they were, uh, serious of a threat. Mosley and the British Union of Fascists tend to... They're in everyone's mind, aren't they, when we talk about fascism in the interwar years and in the wartime years. We think of Mosley, we think of the BUF, because I suppose they were the premium brand of fascism. That's what everyone knows. What the MI5 files show is that, to a large degree, the BUF and Mosley were a busted flush. Um, There was, beyond them, behind them, a large network of other, far more shadowy groups, organisations like the Nordic League, which were much more dangerous, much more dedicated to pro-Nazi fascism, and which were working to bring that about. And so although the BUF was closed down, and some of its individual members were prosecuted for, for treasonous crimes, the real threat was from these other far more shadowy groups who operated behind the scenes. And the leaders of those groups were really part of the aristocratic class of people with wealth and money who were also pro-Hitler sympathizers, if not people who outright wanted the Germans to invade and, and throw, overthrow the government. Absolutely. You, the three the three plots I mentioned to you, the conspiracies which I came across, and bear in mind, this isn't me saying this. These are the MI5 files saying this. The leaders of those three plots were all members of the British establishment. One was a sitting MP, a Conservative MP. He sat, had a seat in the House of Commons, and he was running an organisation which was dedicated a fascist organization which was dedicated to violent revolution, to infiltrating the most sensitive of Britain's war departments and of eventually replacing the British government with a puppet regime loyal to Germany, of which the the leader of this um, the group, a man called Archibald Ramsey, the MP, he was going to be the head of this puppet regime. And he had a, he had a, a network. He was also in relate uh, contacting other right wing groups, but also had plans to literally hang people up. Like they had lists of uh, adversaries they were going to off or get rid of uh, in the event of an invasion. Yeah, I mean, what the reason we know this, I should stress, is that MI5, when it did get its act together, when it got some funding, it quite remarkably inserted undercover agents into these fascist organizations. And those agents went to meet Ramsey and his coup plotters and the other two organization coup plotters, and they essentially joined them. And they came back and reported back to MI5 often verbatim what these people were saying. And as you say, in Ramsey's case and in with in, and with the other plots, violence against opponents was planned from the beginning. Right. And so Ramsey, one was uh, that was the rights club that he was operating. There was another one called The Linked that uh, the head of that was Domville, which also... Uh, and Admiral Donville, he was a former head of British naval intelligence. So you can see that these people, these aren't lowly foot soldiers of British fascism. These are establishment figures who happen to be violently anti-Semitic and ardently pro-fascist. Yeah, and the Link had a significant amount of members, 4,000, 5,000. If they're all you know aristocratic or moneyed people, those are influential and you can see that how they tried to integrate themselves into uh, kind of the bureaucracies of, of the time, trying to gain influence and information. Yeah, and that was their role. That's what, that's what Hitler's regime wanted. That's what the Nazis wanted. They wanted agents of influence, um, like the leaders and members of the Link, as well as the people who, like Ramsey, would 
bring about a fascist revolution and turn Britain essentially into a protectorate of Germany. Right, and it really was, I mean, at that time in 39-40, there was that uh, threat of invasion. That was not a, that was a legitimate belief that the German armies or naval powers could land and uh, take over the, the, the island. So it really was a real threat. Sure. I mean, the spring of 1940, when the German armies rolled through Europe, they went, went through Holland and Belgium and then France, the expectation was that the next stop was going to be Britain, that Hitler's troops were going to land on the south coast of Britain and march and fight their way up to London and then beyond. And indeed, it's absolutely factually correct. Hitler's troops were camped on the French coast, essentially looking across the English Channel at Britain. That he didn't invade is probably more fortunate, a matter of fortune, than it was a matter of careful planning by the British government to oppose him. Right, and so there were also uh, very close connections between some of these other fascist leaders. Uh, You talk about uh, three men who traveled to Hitler's birthday on April 30th, 1939. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about them and their influence at them? Sure. I mean, we think about Hitler's 50th birthday took place in April 1939. So six months before war broke out. And at that point, the world and his wife knew that war was coming. Everyone in Britain knew it. The British government knew it. The American government knew it. Europe knew it. War with Germany was coming. And yet, for this vast almost orgiastic celebration of Hitler's 50th birthday, three leading British figures from the aristocracy and the military were invited as personal guests of Hitler to go and stand and watch the parades and celebrate his birthday. And one of them was not just a senior member of the aristocracy, he was a senior member of the the king's household, the Duke of Buccleo. He was told not to go. He said, well, I'm going anyway, ignored them, went. And when he came back, he got a severe dressing down. But he continued to lobby for Hitler and and for the Germans, even after the war began. Yeah, it's incredible. Who were the other two? It was Arthur, now Kane, Brockett and JFC Fuller, correct? Yeah, I mean, Brockett was um, was a senior aristocrat who had been infected, I think that's probably the best word, with this vicious anti-Semitism, which was redolent in Britain at the time, and was an ardent admirer of Hitler. I think Fuller, the third member of this triumvirate, was the most dangerous. General Fuller was one of the most senior military figures in Britain at the time. He was the father, if you like, of mechanised warfare. He'd reinvented it for Britain. He'd actually worked with the Nazi regime in the mid-30s to mechanise their forces. Heinz Guderian visited him in the UK, so one of the leading generals. Um, And Fuller, when he came back from celebrating Hitler's 50th birthday, he joins or is part of this web of fascist groups, is, uh, is vocal about the need for what he called civil war with shots fired in the streets. That's a quote to bring about a pro Nazi fascist government in Britain. And yet, he remains a confidant of and given access to Britain's most senior military councils by Britain's then most senior military figure. It's extraordinary that he managed to retain this despite being an open pro-Hitler, pro-Nazi fascist. Yeah, it's remarkable. And, uh, I mean, one of the odd things is how fervent... The anti-Semitism ones, one of your earlier chapters is Parish Judah, which is this kind of secret single, at least for the right club, they use that PJ, the acronym PJ, to represent that. Can you talk about why that anti-Semitism was there or discuss that at that time in the 1930s? 
Sure. I mean, Britain wasn't unique in have, in suffering from anti-Semitism. The 1930s saw a flourishing of anti-Jewish sentiment and hatred against Jews. It, and it flourished in Britain in all classes. Britain was then, even more than it is now, a class-ridden society. And it I think conventional histories tended to tend to say, well, yes, anti-Semitism existed and it was picked up by the working class who were disenfranchised and who were suffering because of the depression. And it, it found some foothold in the aristocracy. But the truth is, and the truth attested to by the files, is that anti-Semitism spread throughout all classes of British society, working class, middle class, upper class, all the levels of government and the military were infected with an absolutely virulent hatred of, of Jews. And you know, it's irrational, it's vile, but it was there, and it was. It wasn't, I think, the 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 sole motive for treachery. But the best analogy I could come up with was that anti-Semitism was the fertile soil in which pro-Nazi fascism and treachery grew and blossomed. Well, it's interesting you, you state that word treachery because there were two members of the House of Lords that you talk about in your book that engaged in outright treachery. It was uh, Tavistock and Lord Semple. Can you talk about them and what, what uh, they were up to? I, I can, but I just need to have a slight caveat. When we talk about treachery, we're using it with a small t, if you like. We, and we have to do that because until around May 1940... Britain didn't actually have a law against treachery with a big T. There wasn't a treachery act. The Home Office, which is our basic organisation, government organisation, which creates laws and, and monitors and polices laws, had let it lapse after the First World War and in the 1930s just simply forgot to renew it. So there was a great scrabble around when Hitler's armies were camped on the other side of the Channel, saying, well, we better get, we better get a treachery act on, on the statute books quite quickly. And they, they did. They got it through in one day. It had only one penalty, and that was death. So when we talk about treachery, I just need to, to bracket it with what we're talking about is people who were guilty, in, who committed treachery with a small t, rather than treachery under the Treachery Act. Okay. Sorry for that being pedantic, but it's 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 a complicated legal mess. And well, we just have to it's, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of these people, the list of the many saboteurs, they were being prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act, which limited uh, punishment. So uh, it was it's kind of a, you're right. It's an oversight by by the Home Office. It, seems. it was it was a shocking and but not atypical oversight by the Home Office. The two, I mean, the the aristocrats who you mentioned who committed treachery with a small t, I mean, I think the one who surprised me the most was Lord Tavistock, who became the Duke of Bedford. He's the fourth richest man in Britain at the time. He'd been a serving soldier briefly in the First World War, had developed, again, a vicious anti-Semitism and an absolutely dog-like admiration for Hitler and for fascism. He funded a number of fascist organisations, underground and semi-underground, in Britain. But, as you say, in February 1940, so we'd been at war with Germany for six, almost six months at that point, he committed a serious offence, which would in other circumstances, for other people, less well-elevated well people, would have sent them to prison for a very long time at least. He travelled to Dublin. He arranged to meet German officials in Dublin. And he negotiated 
a private peace treaty between Britain and Germany, which, for the price of Hitler stepping aside to a nominal post in a new German government, admitting what Tavistock described as handling errors over, again, quotes, the Semitic problem, Germany would graciously agree not to invade Britain. And this was the deal that Tavistock negotiated and brought back proudly to Britain and planned to publish in a national newspaper. Now, by any standards, he should have been locked up for this. In fact, a year later, two drunk Scottish, drunken Scottish youths placed a prank call to that very same German embassy or consulate in Dublin. Didn't get through, but did it as a joke just to see if they could. They got three months apiece for a prank. Wow. Tavistock got nothing. The most that MI5 could persuade the British government to do was to put Tavistock's name on the list of people to be arrested immediately if Germany invaded, and their documents spell out exactly why they wanted that to happen, and it's because, in MI5's words, the German invaders would make Tavistock a Gauleiter, the leader of a pro-Nazi British puppet regime. Yeah, it's incredible. So you see this kind of end around of uh, attempts to uh, negotiate peace with the UK or with England uh, through Tavistock. You'll see that it's, what is it, May 10th, 1941. Hess is uh, sent on a flight to northern Scotland, and a lot of these names are brought up on this in this trick to get Hess to come to the UK. Uh, the Link, Domville, all these things, that's who he's supposedly meeting. So it's not that far away from these kind of, uh, this environment that was happening in England at the time. No, I mean, there was a broad swathe of what I think we have to call the aristocracy and the political aristocracy who wanted Germany to win and who were going to do their damnedest to make sure it did. Yeah, it's, an incre- it's incredible. And so then who was Lord Semphill and how, and I think that the book shows that these, these people clearly have a different set of rules. They, uh, they, they were not pros- prosecuted or thrown in jail for a lot of their activities. No, I mean, before we get to Semple, we should just flip back, if I may, to Ramsey, this conservative MP who plotted to overthrow the government and replace it with a fascist regime. He wasn't arrested or tried. He was interned under wartime emergency legislation, which meant we could put people in, we could hold them without trial because they were a threat to the state. But it's a measure of how protected he was as an MP, that throughout the time he spent in internment, he retained his seat in the House of Commons, his MP's seat, he retained his MP's salary of £600, and he was allowed to carry on being an MP from behind prison walls as if nothing had happened. It's incredible. It's remarkable, isn't it? yeah, Yeah, it is. It really is remarkable. It's a remarkable time in that wartime area where it seems like some of these uh, decisions that were made on counterintelligence were, were, you know, soft on some people and some people went to jail. Yeah. I mean, justice was pretty rough and ready and it's absolutely clear from the hundreds of files that I went through that the higher you were in social rank or perceived social rank, the less likely you were to face any punishment for treachery or treason or working on behalf of the Nazi state. Wow. And so um, Sempil was also involved in this lower case, lower T treachery as well. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, Sempil is a, a classic example of a protected British aristocrat. His family went back, could trace its lineage back to the 15th century. He'd been been in royal circles for that long. They'd had a seat in the House of Lords for 200 years. And Semphill had been a World War I pilot, a decorated pilot, and then had earned 
genuine celebrity in the interwar years as a pioneering civil aviator. But Sempil was also a spy. And we know this because the files show that in the 1920s, he was caught selling Britain's military secrets to Japan, which was then becoming the dominant force in the Far East. And he he wasn't fired from his military position at that point, his government position. He was just given a bit of a, a dressing down, a bit of a telling off, and told, don't do it again. He ignored that advice and was caught in early 1940 doing exactly the same thing, selling military secrets to Japan, to Japanese intelligence. He was then working at the time for the air ministry in one of the most incredibly sensitive departments in the air ministry. And he was caught red-handed selling not just British military secrets, but military information which it would appear helped Japan mount the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, again, you would think rationally, wouldn't you? Anyone who does this is going to have his collar felt. He's going to get arrested and sent to prison. Sempil was simply quietly eased out of his government position and left free to enjoy all the privileges and wealth of his rank. It's just incredible. Um, at the intro, you mentioned these three conspiracies that you wrote about. Do you want to, I don't know if we went in detail about those, but if you want to address uh, the Kensington conspiracy and some of these characters <laughs> we've mentioned? The Kensington conspiracy, I think, is something we should, if it's okay with you, talk about. Please do. Largely because until I stumbled across a really dusty old file, no one had ever, ever written about this before. This was an, a conspiracy run by a man who is only given the merest footnote in official histories, a man called Lee Vaughan Henry. He was a celebrated musician or a musical uh, conductor. He conducted concerts for the British royal family. He'd held prestigious posts in musical institutes across Europe and regularly appeared on BBC, the wireless, the radio, um, giving concerts. He was, in the 30s, he was a, a celebrated musical authority. He was also a convicted and violent anti-Semite who was dedicated to helping Germany, had maintained contact with German intelligence and the leaders, and indeed had been entertained in Berlin by the leaders of the Nazi regime. And he set up an organisation, we don't know its name, but because MI5 infiltrated undercover agents into it, we do know many of the details of what it was up to. And Henry had organised this on military lines, so there were its classic infiltration lines, if you like. He had he'd formed 18 cells of 25 members each. They all had hiding places. He had a printing press. He had acquired um, blank passports and was providing that as, to get people in and out of the country. He'd linked up with IRA terrorists who were going to come over and form, the, form an army, a revolutionary army. And he was planning to bump off opponents. And all of this, including deposing the elected British government, was, in his own words, to take place once the German army had won its battles in Holland and Belgium and France and, in, and then come to Britain. That was going to be the key for this fascist revolution, which he fully anticipated to involve a great deal of violence. It's so much so, in fact, that he, they, MI5 found receipts 
showing he was importing or trying to import a vast arsenal of rifles and ammunition worth £15 million in today's money to arm his troops. Yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, so these things were happening under under the this wartime environment, but the public at that time never knew of all of these machinations that were taking place. No, Henry, like most of the other um, serious and seriously connected traitors, was rounded up and interned for the duration of the war. He was never tried. There was never anything in, in the, the newspapers or in the media about Henry, which is why I think he's or partially why he's escaped scrutiny for so long. I, we know from the files which I did find that MI5 kept, had three voluminous dossiers on him and his organisation. And when I stumbled across what he was up to in his name, I thought, well, I'll go and find these. And I found the reference numbers, and I found what they were supposed to contain. But the files themselves were missing. And this formed part of a pattern. The more serious you were as a fascist revolutionary, a pro-Nazi British fascist, and the more socially elevated you were, the more likely it was that the files on you, which had been kept by the MI5 or the British government, had been disappeared. They have not been released. So I had to scratch around and find details of what Henry had been up to from other files. And there were plenty there was plenty of information in that, but it was extraordinary that his own files and all of the files on his organization's members have simply been hidden away and are, and remain hidden away still. So there there the files are uh missing. Like there's a fifty year rule, so are you saying well, that there there's just there's, there's just nothing in the folder? There isn't even a 50-year rule anymore in this country. It's kind of a myth that we've, we've allowed to, to carry on in this country. We finally got round to having what you guys have got, a Freedom of Information Act, in 2000. Somewhat belated, but at least we have one. And that essentially abolished the 50-year rule and the 30-year rule and all those convenient little mechanisms which British governments have used to keep things secret. So the files should, if you, in theory, be available in, the, in our national archives. There is an exemption, and that exemption is MI5 files. Those are not released by right. MI5 occasionally manages to hand a few over to the national archives, in, in, sometimes in a sanitized form. But, and that's where I found much of the information but you'd think wouldn't you that the files on these people the files on the activities they carried out which were which were to bring about a german victory you'd think that would be important that we would have those in the public record but they're not yeah it's remarkable um tim we are at 45 minutes We've, we've talked about a lot of things in this book. There's a lot more to cover. There's just a lot more material in this very detailed book, and it was a great read. really enjoyed reading it. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed, anything that uh, you'd like to kind of wrap up with? No, I'm, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm glad you found the book interesting. I, I mean, I have to say that I had not expected when I started work on this, I hadn't expected it to to find quite so much information, nor that that information would be so revealing, and nor that it would take me quite so long to analyse, cross-reference, and produce the book at the end of it. I feel very privileged to have done so. Um, I just hope that it helps inform people better about what was going on under the surface. Yes, yeah. I think so. I, I think you definitely succeeded. And for me, as we talked uh, in the, kind of the pre-interview, I've covered some of these figures in my books: Maxwell Knight, JFC Fuller, who knew Crowley. So a lot of these, this kind of really enriched and expanded my view of really the the time frame 
of the 40s and the 50s and who these people's the the elements i didn't know that fuller was such a rogue I, now i kind of understand his friendship with crowley better but uh so it was uh it was very uh enlightening read so i'm glad that you wrote it and i mean there's all this other stuff i hope people check out your website because it'll show all of these interesting things you've done in your career that you've covered so many different uh, investigative subjects that are important child pornography uh, you work with a guy by the name of roger cook who is a well-known investigative journalist in the uk somebody that the people in the u.s should know about but don't and you've done so many uh different video segments and for people who don't know you worked on or produced the conspiracy of silence about the what's known here in the states as the franklin cover-up and that is kind of like a parapolitical subject most americans who are interested in uh, suppressed history or suppressed information have looked at online you know so that was somehow leaked I, I don't really even know the story of how it leaked but it came out and people were shocked that this uh was never actually made public made to the public I, I, my understanding was the conspiracy of silence documentary somebody came along and paid a and e or something to not publish that is that correct not quite okay. i it, i was the producer on the film we'd be commissioned by the Discovery Channel in the US and Europe to make this film um, explicitly about the Franklin, what's become known as the Franklin Scandal. And uh, I can remember the meeting with the commissioning editor and she's from Discovery and she said, it's got politics, it's got pedophilia, it's got everything we want. And we spent six, eight months researching and filming. I had access to roomfuls of um, grand jury documents and secret testimony and we made the film and we were editing the film when discovery pulled the plug and we never got a satisfactory answer the best i heard or we got from discovery was they decided they weren't going to broadcast it even though it was in the listings magazines in the u.s um they decided they weren't going to broadcast it because and i quote we seem to have gotten into an, an investigative area which is inconsistent with the discovery mission statement. End quotes. Fascinating. What do you recollect? What year around that was? What year that was? Yeah, I make it very clearly. Uh, we we made the film in between ninety three and ninety four, and they pulled it in the spring of nineteen ninety four, so that we never finished the edit, edit. What we ended up with was what's called a rough cut. We were shooting on, on, on film, on celluloid in those days. And somebody, I do not know who, leaked a copy to somebody. And eventually, when the internet happened, because there was no internet when we started, there was no World Wide Web, um, eventually it turned up on YouTube, which is where you can see the half-finished thing, which was our film. So you, when what was leaked was only halfway done, or do you think that it was that rough cut... Um, there would have been much more information, or what was your opinion of what was leaked? Um, well, what was leaked was a rough cut. I mean, when you make a film, you produce a rough cut, which is your first assembly, almost to, pretty much to length. Um, uh, but it has bits of film missing. It has, in the, old, in the old days when we did this on film, you'd see a little card pop up saying scene missing or... Um, caption missing. So, it mean, when, if your listeners look at it, and I think it's still on YouTube, you'll see it looks pretty rough, and that's because it is what it says, a rough cut. Um, would there have been a great deal more information? No, it would have been clearer, I think, but it gives you a pretty good idea of what we found. And just in case any of your listeners who do view it wonder whether there were legal problems... As the producer, it was my job to clear the film with lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic. British libel law is very strict. It's far stricter than US libel law. And our lawyers were the top firm of libel lawyers at the time, and they gave it a clean bill of health. I also cleared it with a top firm of libel lawyers in New York, and they too gave it a clean bill of health. So there were certainly no legal problems. Fascinating. And how did that story come to your attention to begin with? I'd been working um, in Los Angeles 
on a film about the Robert Kennedy assassination, which I'd made a couple of years earlier for Channel 4 in the UK and A&E in the US. And one of the journalists I'd been speaking to had said, I think you should look at the Franklin scandal next. And he got in touch with me in 93 and said, will you have a look at this? And sent me some information. And that's how it began. Fascinating. That's amazing. So you were right there, kind of... uh... Well, I don't really even know the dates of when these these uh, people... I mean, did the scandal really happen right there at the beginning of the 90s, or was there some kind of lag? Or I don't no, it started before that. It started in the mid to late 80s. Oh, okay. um, so by the time we got there in 93, what we were doing was reconstructing the mess that had been created from documents and testimony and interviews and much of the much of the mess had already happened. Fascinating. Wow. Well, I commend you for making that in the film because it's a very important piece of uh, American history, and it shows that information can be covered up, and these scandals do happen. So, uh, a lot of people in my kind of independent investigative journalist always look at that as kind of a, a very important uh, way to get an understanding of how the media system here in the U.S. works. It's not, uh, doesn't, things don't always pass through. Things get spiked, things get uh, taken out. So, Sure, it's just, it's one of those things. I wish we'd been able to finish the film. Um, I think it would have been a very powerful piece of television. Um, as it is, I think it's a fairly powerful, rough-looking video on YouTube. Well, I, I agree with you. I think it's very powerful, and I think it's very important. I think people, if they get a chance and have not seen The Conspiracy of Sounds, they should go and check it out. Very important. So, again, your website, Tim, is timtate.co.uk. People go check this out and check out this book. It's a very fascinating insight into uh, World War II history, and particularly in the U.K., and there's just a lot of material to learn there. Again, the title of the book is Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors in World War II, published July 2nd, 2019. Tim Tate, thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right, have a good day. And you.